I didn't expect so many people over the years to come up and say, this totally changed the way I run games and run yeah. all of my games. Um, so that's, you know, the, the best thing that you can possibly hear, right? So I, I, I'm, uh, you need to be an egotist to make art, but I'm not enough of an egotist, or at least not at that time, to have anticipated that so many people would say that. Robin Laws is a name you'll hear mentioned repeatedly by other creators I interview on this podcast. He's an author, game designer, RPG icon, and problem solver. Is RPG comment not cinematic enough and it takes too long? Robin gives us feng shui. RPG investigations are tedious, easily derailed by bad roles, and don't feel like the mysteries in the movies. Robin gives us the gumshoe system. RPG social conflict is boring and doesn't feel like the tense, dramatic scenes we see in Game of Thrones or Sopranos. Robin gives us Hill Folk. This episode is being released in early July 2021. If you're listening to it then, one of his horror gumshoe games is up on Bundle of Holding. Click on the Bundle of Holding link in the show notes to get $120 worth of books for his horror RPG Yellow King for less than $30. This offer is a steal for a great game, and part of the revenue goes to charity. Well, Robin did not disappoint. We talk about how he became an author and creator, and how he came up with his innovative systems and mechanics. Robin pulls back the curtain and holds nothing back. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Robin. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to game designer and author Robin Laws. Robin may be best known for his gumshoe RPG system, or maybe Feng Shui, or maybe Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, but that doesn't list everything that he has created. He has created a long list of content, we're going to try to touch on as much of it as we can today. So, Robin, welcome to the third floor. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, what are on the other two floors? <laughs> so, first floor, I've got my kitchen and all that, and then on the second floor are the bedrooms, but basically, I... Uh, when I bought this house, uh, I work from home, uh, with my day job. And, uh, I told my wife that I either needed a refinished basement or a, you know, a refinished third floor because I needed an office. But uh, the, the deal for her, the incentive for her to make it happen is all of my game stuff would not be anywhere she could see it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, so, so the, the third floor is, is the exile floor. It's exactly right. The third floor is my domain. I think in the six years we've owned this house, probably she's been up here four times. Uh, And that makes her very happy. And she doesn't have board games and role-playing books and everything. And if I leave something downstairs, third floor, she'll just point to it and point point up and say that goes to the third floor. So this is where you stash evidence of your many crimes. Well, that's exactly right. You know, she can never fully calculate how much damage I've done to our finances without coming up here. 
but uh, it, it's nice. It uh, it works out really well, and it um, I've got uh, gaming tables all set up. It's about seven hundred square feet. So it, well, um, those of us who design games depend on people like you to have entire floors <laughs> full of games. So thank you for your service. You're a big fan, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, so Robin, uh, you're going to get probably the standard question, the origin story. Um, so at some point. You uh, knew nothing about uh, tabletop gaming, role-playing games, or anything, and then suddenly it was put in front of you for the first time. Can we go back to that time? So uh, in, in the uh, 70s, uh, I, as, a, as a kid, I was interested in science fiction and fantasy, and uh, among the uh, magazines that I read were analog science fiction, and at, at that time, an analog magazine had ads from TSR, which, of course, did Dungeons & Dragons, Metagaming, which is the first game company that Steve Jackson U.S. worked at. And so I was aware that there was this thing called role-playing games, especially Dungeons and Dragons, very interesting. And it somehow seemed like it was a story, yet also a game. But of course, it wasn't remotely clear from the little one-page ads in this black-and-white digest-sized magazine what that entailed. Um, And I did finally order something from Metagaming, which was a, a little war game called Chitin, we had these little tiny plastic, or not plastic, paper counters, and you uh, had a, a fight with them, and there was like alien insects versus each other. And so I tried that out with a friend, and it didn't seem like much of a thing. <laughs> Finally, um, I'm on vacation with my family. Uh, we're uh, going through uh, North America and various vacations in a motorhome, and our adventures took us to uh, a, uh, a colonial tourist town in Virginia. There is a, a gift shop. Bottom floor of the gift shop, uh, there's a handful of games, and one of them is Blue Box D&D. Wow. So I convinced my dad to buy me Blue Box D&D, and this is back in the day when there's no dice in it. You just yep. get, once again, little pieces of cardboard paper with the numbers on it. Um, and so I would take D&D back to the motorhome. We're driving down the highway in, in uh, your beautiful country, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck is the deal with uh, this book, of course, because this is in the prehistoric era where the what is a role-playing game sidebar has not yeah. yet been conceived of, so you've done what the deal is with it. So finally, I sort of figured it out, convinced my younger brother, who's five years younger than me, so uh, just at the edge of possibly understanding this, and my dad <laughs> to have them run their two characters through a dungeon that I created. And my, my dad was immediately killed by a carrion crawl, and that was the extent of his role-playing hobby. That was it for him. Uh, but when I got home, I uh, got on the phone, called up the friend that we tried to do chitin with, and said, I uh, just found uh, this uh, game, this Dungeons & Dragons the game while I was on vacation. Do you think you might be interested in coming over and playing it? And my friend said, I've been waiting for someone to tell me that for my entire life! <laughs> so he came over and he roped other people in. And that's how uh, we discovered Dungeons and Dragons. And it turned out that indeed there were other D and D things that existed at that point in our lo- yeah. local hobby store in the small city that I grew up in. Uh, started getting those in, and so this was the point uh, when the player's handbook and the monster manual for AD and D existed, but not yet the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. So if anyone wants to go and do the research, they can pinpoint exactly when this was that I got involved in, in role playing 
And was it, I mean, was it sounds like it was immediate, Robin, where you were just like, once you, once you grokked the original uh, rules of it and started, you know, playing it, um, you were hooked? Uh, yeah, basically. And of course, yeah. later on, we followed the pattern where it's like, wait a minute, there seem to be other games that are like this. And so uh, we uh, expanded with other things, the initial TSR things, Top Secret, which of course is in its yep. first edition is uh, famously broke and difficult to, to, to operate. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, well, finally, I discovered Chaosium things at uh, Call of Cthulhu, oh. uh, where and suddenly running a Call of Cthulhu adventure or reading it, I guess I realized, oh wait a minute, these are actually are stories, uh, oh, and it can have a narrative, and it's that can be part of an, an art form. And so uh, from there, I went to uh, RuneQuest, uh, to Greg Stafford's World of Glorantha, which I'm my day current day's work <laughs> is on a RuneQuest project. So. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I remember back to those days in RuneQuest 2, you would look at the back and there'd be a list of different uh, products that were coming out. And one of them was yeah. HeroQuest. I didn't realize I would have to grow up and become a game designer in order for HeroQuest to come out. Uh, <laughs> it seems, seems like an elaborate series of events now that I look back on it. But uh, that's funny. Uh, that was role playing, basically. Yeah. Now, I'd be curious, um, as we go through these origin stories with different um designers robin it's it's not uncommon for there to be a we were i was on a break for a decade or so were you continually playing these games or was there a period of time where you put them down and then rediscovered them um even when briefly i didn't have a game group i was still reading uh gaming stuff and in fact the way that i filled my gaming content uh during that time which was um, early on in university was uh i uh, put up posters around the university I went to saying, do you want to play by mail? Because that was the only way I could do things. And some uh, one of the people I got in touch with who uh, wanted to run a game uh, by mail also introduced me to a fanzine called Alarms and Excursions. And uh, through that, and you could look up uh, on the internet what Alarms and Excursions are, is and what its interesting contributor-directed format was. But the short version of that is that I then wound up uh, writing about things that I was working on. And oh, wow. uh, when I finally did get a, a gaming group, a very strange sort of tribal magic oriented, uh, uh, low magic fantasy campaign. Uh, and I got in touch with people like uh, Jonathan Tweet um, and, yep. and Rob Hainso. And through that, uh, I uh, through another sequence of events, which I will uh, collapse uh, for the uh, patience of your viewers, I wound up falling backwards into uh, this being my career and my job. I had always thought of myself as a writer, but I'd maybe right. thought more about uh, screenwriting or play or uh, particularly uh, stage writing. Uh, but it wound up that I uh, did this instead. And it turns out that uh, there are a lot of people i have been writing plays and novels and movies for many decades, but the uh, field uh, role playing was is was and is uh, very new, and so there's a lot yep. more opportunity to uh, come in and put your stamp not just on your own material but on the entire forum. So uh, it's not something that I uh, plan to do necessarily, but it's uh, uh, obviously what I wound up doing. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert, right? <laughs> yes, so hence this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you say you backed into it, you fell into it, it ended up being what it was. Was there a moment where you're like, you know, this is what I want to do? Or was it just all of a sudden you lurked around and go, I get, well, I guess this is how I'm making a living. 
Um, well, I was definitely very excited to to get involved, and I didn't realize, uh, and, and in fact, kind of quickly happened that I went from working on a few things to doing it full time. Right. Um, and uh, it's very difficult, has always been very difficult uh, to make a full time living as a role playing, particularly a tabletop role playing yep. uh, game designer. Um, but I, uh, the uh, video store that I was working at, uh, that location closed and I was briefly un- unemployed. And uh, by the time the guy who owned that chain of video stores called me and said, asked me if I wanted to come back, I was, nope, I'm a full time writer now. That's cool. Um, and uh, so uh, I was able to sort of exercise the discipline in order to do it, in order to uh, keep doing it. And uh, it is very, very difficult uh, to make any sort of living, uh, making any art of any kind. Yeah. And uh, the uh, idea that you would turn up your nose at an opportunity to <laughs> have an audience help shape an entire art form. Uh, yeah. I don't know why you would do that. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. So you, you just casually said this, but it's a uh, it's a it's a interesting to me. You said you worked at a video store. I worked at a video store in high school, and I'd be curious if you um, the legacy of that is the same as mine, which is I have seen a lot of movies, like a lot of movies. Did you just consume movies while you were there? I would bring home three or four a night. Yes, absolutely, and we would have them on in the store. But I was already a huge movie fan. Yeah. Hence my thinking of that as a job that I can possibly do. And I've always been a, a, a film fan and uh, gotcha. it's the thing that my wife and I have in common and uh, going to the Toronto film festival every year has been a big part of that. And the contents of those films, particularly the films at, uh, at TIFF, the, uh, then the festival festivals later, and now the Toronto international film festival have uh, very much influenced my work and my understanding of narrative and my focus on narrative and narrative structure. Yeah, that's where I was headed. Which is yep. part of my, you know, design signature. Yeah, because I mean, and uh, we're obviously going to dig into it, but uh, cinematic and narrative are two words that constantly come up when people talk about uh, talk about your work. So, guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, creators, and to learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations, and that's what we're going to do with Robin. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about some of his early work in the '90s. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. 
Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So um, you're, you're making a living full time at this point um, and, 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 doing, and doing your work. And we're going to get into gumshoe. We're going to get into feng shui and what you're working on now. But I'd be curious to know some of your early works, um, especially in retrospect, Rama. What, are, what do you consider some of the works that you worked on earlier that um, helped define and shape you as, as a developer and a designer? Well, the two projects that got me into uh, this at all uh, would be writing uh, additional merit writing additional material for uh, Jonathan Tweet's Over the Edge. Uh, and this, in fact, was just part of our correspondence uh, that we <laughs> had at the time that sprang out of Alarms and Excursions. He uh, was involved in, with Lion Rampant for a while and the creation of Osmagica. He got out for a while, he came back, and uh, then he said, I'm working on a game with an unpublishable setting for my home group. And it's inspired, Robin, by this article that you wrote for Alarms and Excursions about what a William S. Burroughs role-playing game would look like. Now, it's very much a Jonathan Tweet take on William S. Burroughs. Um, yep. But I saw his material and I said, well, if you want to make it weird, here's a bunch of stuff, other stuff that can be in this. And so I just wrote up uh, stuff just thinking he would use it in his game. But in fact, that wound up being uh, essentially verbatim uh, <laughs> in uh, uh, Over the Edge. Uh, and in fact, we uh, there was a big debate at the time because at in one of these things that I've written just for Jonathan's use, uh, it used uh, there was an f bomb in it, and we there was a lot of agonizing over whether this could actually that word could ever be in a role playing product. And it was determined that no, it couldn't. And both Jonathan and John Nephew of Atlas were very apologetic about this, and <laughs> I didn't care at all. And of course, now early censorship you you wouldn't you wouldn't bat an eye at uh, adult language yeah. in a uh, role playing game aimed at adults. Um, and so that was uh, adding surreal setting material to Jonathan's very freeform uh, uh, game mechanics and his very interesting, cool, weird world. Uh, the other thing was uh, that uh, tribal fantasy setting that I mentioned earlier. Uh, out of the blue, I got a set of writer's guidelines from Steve Jackson Games saying, would you like to write a supplement based on this game you're describing in Alarms and Excursions? And so I did that as well. And that's, uh, so that's called, it wound up being called GURPS Fantasy II Adventures in the Madlands. Uh, and oh, uh, I don't think two, I knew that was you. Wow. That, that's, yeah, my original first thing. Um, and so uh, after wow. that, I wound up being contacted by uh, other uh, companies that were looking, after, uh, looking for freelancers because at that time the community was very close-knit. It had one little online hub off in the corner yeah. of what they were beginning to call the internet. Um, and so uh, I got a bunch <laughs> of uh, opportunities to work on stuff for Earthdawn, for FASA, a uh, big underground supplement, and uh, a few other things. And from there, uh, that uh, led me to uh, pitch uh, Feng Shui to its original uh, publisher. 
So, Rema, when you look back at at, you, at those early works, um, especially in the context now having so much design under your belt, right? You've learned obviously who you are now as a designer was not who you were then, right? And you know a lot. Think about it differently, I would assume, than you did back then. But w- w- what did you figure out then? Did you was it trial and error, or do you think that you had a knack for it, or what led you to be able to be published at that point? Do you think? I think those original things were just acts of pure creation because in neither case were they in fact intended for publication. It was a right. game book based on my home campaign. Um, and it was a bunch of cool ideas for Jonathan. And I think it was the freedom of doing that that enabled me to sort of think, well, oh, well, anything goes, you can break the mold. If I was to set out to write a commercial GURP supplement, <laughs> GURP's fantasy too would not be it. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, but it, over uh, the years, I have always followed that impulse to go, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff I do is like, here's a supplement for this game. Yep. Let's, you know, paint within the lines. But a lot of times it's like, how can I uh, do things differently and better than they've been done before? How can I format this better? Uh, what, how can this be a, a better experience? Uh, because uh, there's still a lot of uh, uh, ground to cover. And so I've always uh, perhaps foolishly given myself permission to try and look at things in different ways and kind of take them apart and go, well, how, why would this experience be unsatisfying? Uh, how do we make it better? Uh, what, uh, how would this feel like if it was uh, a movie or a TV show? And is it disappointing if our game session doesn't feel enough like a movie or a TV show, uh, which I would argue it very often is because that's people's frame of reference for, uh, for storytelling. Um, and so uh, I guess what those early experiences gave me were the, creative arrogance to say, uh, well, I'm just going to try and do something wild and, and swing for the fences or just do something uh, different or, or come at things from a, another angle. So what do you, th- if you were to try to um, narrow down some of the things that you think you have gotten better at or things that have changed, um, uh, but in, in these years, since from the, from that early worker, we've got, I've got a sense of what stayed the same, right? Things that you were doing back then that you've tried to keep through this whole process. What are things that, that you developed and discarded, um, as far as, as far as your process? Um, if you look at the first edition of Feng Shui, you will notice that it makes a number of design errors, uh, that it doesn't fully, grasp the new thing that it's introducing. And so they're in the corners of it. There are bits of older school design uh, that Mm -hmm. haven't quite been come to terms with. Uh, uh, And they're both big and small examples of that. A big example of that is that original Feng Shui has uh, character, non-player character equivalency, meaning that all of the characters work on the same rules mechanics. Uh, the new Feng Shui, Feng Shui 2, uh, the, uh, what that does is it recognizes that what you need from foes, the stats that you need for them, and what level they're at and how you operate them are actually completely different than right. the stats for player characters because their function is uh, utterly different. And that you, you're not trying to – so that's an example of the old school thinking of yep. we're kind of simulating a world. A, in, in this case, an utterly fanciful world. So let's have sort of a system of mathematics that explains how those bits of the world interact. 
And uh, on one level, it's, it talks a lot about it being emulative, and the most important elements of it are emulating, uh, particularly in that case, the uh, feel and style of uh, Hong Kong action movies. Uh, but right. on other levels, it remains a more conventional design. Um, on on a, uh, a simpler level, or I guess or a, a more detail-oriented level, the way that um, bulletproof vests work in original feng shui is that they reduce the amount of damage that you get by a certain amount. Um, but if you look at action movies, that's not at all what bulletproof vests do. Bulletproof vests and action movies are a one-shot resurrection spell. Um, and uh, that explains retroactively why you weren't dead when we thought you were. Uh, so right. that is not based literally on how Bulletproof Fest works in our world, because that's irrelevant to Feng Shui and to John Wu. Um, but rather, uh, so, uh, and I'm not sure those are examples of doing things differently, of having a, a completely changed perspective. It's just going back with the benefit of hindsight and going, oh, well, this, right. oh, wait, this bit doesn't actually fit what uh, the basic underlying design of Feng Shui was trying to get at. And that's because it was the first game to do those things. And it's weird to think, to look back at it and go, oh, this is the first major published game that said, oh, let the players describe stuff in the world. That's crazy. Right? You would think that, oh, we've always had that. But nope. Yeah. Uh, because people uh, were kind of freaked out about it at the time. And other people looked at it and went, oh, what? I should do this in every game. And, and of course the answer is yes, you should. And so um, there are people who say that Feng Shui changed the way that they gamed because that was the, 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 the one that taught them what is now this basic element of, of what we do. And, and I'll tell you, Robin, it, it amazes me because I, I took a large, large break. So I stopped playing in the early nineties and uh, <laughs> GURPS fantasy two was one of the last books I bought. And, um, I came back to it two years ago, right? So I literally took 25, 30 years off. And that single thing you just described was one of the biggest changes that I saw. When I came back into role-playing and realized that change, it was like, and for me, it was, you know, happened overnight, right? Because I was Rumpelstiltskin during that time. And you're 100% correct. It's it's incredible. So would it be fair to say then, if I, and I'm going to try to encapsulate what you said there, and if I'm off, please tell me that, you may have learned not to bring the baggage in like you had some old old mechanic baggage that you brought into Feng Shui one, not really realizing it. And now through through hindsight, you learn that you can that nothing's sacred, that you can you can reexamine everything and throw things out. Um, is that something that you consider yourself better at now? Uh, yeah, um, well, well, certainly it's all about looking at does this work? Does it get right. where we want to go? And if there are things that I when I look back at them again, and if I ever get a second run at things, my, my impulse now is always, can I simplify this further? Can I make it simpler and more streamlined? Um, and part of that is that the audience has changed, and not just in the yeah. 25 years where you were frozen in a block of ice in, in the Atlantic Ocean, but even over you know a five or six period year period, um, people's uh, willingness to accept fairly simple uh, mechanics, even in what is allegedly the trad space, uh, has increased. And yeah. uh, part of that is just that people are older and have less time and want to play more games. And you can only memorize uh, D&D so many times. Uh, and yeah. after that, you want a, a simpler thing. And also new people are coming in. We don't, mm -hmm. if you were to 
do a demographic survey of what gamers were uh, when you left and now, there'd be some pretty dramatic changes. And one of the less obvious ones is that the percentage of people who are uh, mathematicians, physicists, engineers, and lawyers is down as a percentage. Uh, It's up in absolute numbers, but now we have way (laughs) more people uh, from humanities and and other areas coming in and their uh, interest or patience for uh, elaborate character uh, generation uh, or uh, a fight that takes three hours uh, may be different uh, than you and I back in the day. No, that's a, that's a very good point. I had not thought about that. Very, very true. Very, very true. So guys, let's take a quick break. And we kind of started talking about Feng Shui. I want to talk about it a lot more. So uh, let's take a break. We'll talk about Feng Shui. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new play mat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So um, one day when uh, the archaeologists are in the uh, uh, the Laws Museum and they're going through all of the artifacts and they're looking at uh, the origins of Feng Shui, where do you, where were the first seeds, Robin? Where where was the first kernel that would end up becoming Feng Shui? So previously I mentioned the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, then yep. called the Festival of Festivals, and in 1988, uh, the late programmer David Overby uh, programmed a very influential. A retrospective of recent uh, Asian films called Asian Horizons. And there are films from Japan and Korea and uh, the, the rest of East Asia, but particularly uh, the uh, he programmed a lot of Hong Kong cinema. And uh, I saw a bunch of things then, but uh, the, uh, the ones that really hit home uh, were uh, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow uh, and also a really uh, weird offbeat sort of comic booky fantasy uh, film uh, that I still love uh, that's very odd called Savior of the Soul. And particularly watching Better Tomorrow and then the next year when they programmed The Killer, the immediate thought was, uh, why aren't role-playing games like this? Why doesn't combat feel like this in a role-playing game instead of this incremental moment-by-moment slog where you're standing over a table for 90 minutes working out each little incremental thing. And so uh, when I uh, there was a publisher who I thought would be receptive to a uh, pitch, that is what I pitched. I said, uh, this has great potential for a, uh, a, a thing that, you know, changes uh, the way that we feel about action in, uh, in role-playing games. And it's a subgenre, the uh, Hong Kong action movie that hasn't been covered yet. 
and very often, if you uh, back back then, particularly if you were the first to hit a particular genre or subgenre, you kind of had first mover advantage, and you would get attention, and people would, would play your game. Um, and so uh, that is where basically the roots of taking my interest in film and narrative and translating it into the role playing format and seeing what comes out of that. And so among the other things that uh, came out of that were an awareness that uh, even though uh, pop culture and particularly sort of nerdy uh, fantasy action, uh, comic booky uh, genres that uh, are the bread and butter of role playing then and now, the fans of those often have been taught, uh, for example, that stereotypes or archetypes, as I prefer to call them, are bad and a sign of lazy writing. When, of course, right. they're the very core of all of it. And what's interesting is what you do with those archetypes and that they're just um, as important a bit as a building block of narrative uh, yep. and uh, addressing the assumptions of the audience as, uh, you know, lighting or music or anything yep. else in, a, in an accessible a bit of uh, pop culture filmmaking. And so uh, one of the other messages of Feng Shui is don't be so snobby role-playing fans about cliches and about uh, stereotypes because those are actually also tools. And in fact, they're right. even more useful and more forgivable if you do nothing with them but replicate them in a tabletop format because it is about group creation. And so you want to be able to do something that everybody understands the second you do it and something that you can think up quickly and put in the, in the pot. So if you go, well, um, I'm a ninja and I'm, rappling down the side of the building, uh, that's all you need. And everybody understands that. Or yeah. in the case, and it also Feng Shui had to introduce people in North America and, and the rest of the English speaking world to cliches they didn't know about yet because there's a VHS era and nobody, you know, has a couple of steps ahead of them on all of these films. And so, yeah. um, you know, later everybody would know what it was when a person with a white Armani suit and cool sunglasses came through the door with a gun <laughs> in each hand, um, both guns blazing. Uh, but at the time, that was a, a cliche that I had to teach you so that you could then go ahead yeah. and use it. Um, and so uh, another message of Feng Shui is it's not just okay, but it's good in role-playing to draw on these uh, stock elements because they are the basic building blocks of, of storytelling. Right. And then uh, uh, the rest of the design was all about taking a pre-existing uh, rule set that was a little bit erpsy and a little bit simulative and trying to pull, uh, pull all of those guts out of it and to sort of save the initiative system, which had an interesting uh, sort of staggered use of initiative, which felt like cutting between characters in the middle of a fight scene and making it faster and making it more forgiving right. because, of course, to properly do Choi Hawk or John Woo or uh, Ringo Lam, you have to have characters take five or six bullets and keep on going. Um, and so, uh, and that is also where things like the, well, if the, if you as the player, uh, don't get to describe what's in the environment, you're not going to come up with cool stunts that you can do. Um, another, uh, we were talking about errors in Feng Shui, the original Feng Shui, there's a rule everybody ignores because it's so obviously wrong that it actually made stunts slightly more difficult mechanically when of course it's the other way around. Everything you should do should be a stunt that you get rewarded for. 
But that's so out of keeping with the rest of the game that it's invisible. People don't even notice it's there. <laughs> and that's funny. So it, it, as you went through the iterations, um, and, I, and in a moment I want to talk about, obviously, moving to Feng Shui 2, but through the in, initial iterations of, of Feng Shui, the initial Feng Shui, what were, what were some breakthroughs for you? Do you remember some moments where, you know, because when I hear a lot of designers talk about it, there seems to be a couple of moments and they tend to happen towards late in the design process. I hear where they said, you know, what? and then I threw that out and all of a sudden everything made sense. Was there any breakthrough moments in the iterations? Um, actually, the, the big shift happened very early uh, when oh, okay. I was using the, the original mechanics and just real. Oh, no, these are not. They're way too deadly. It's like we did. You can't. We did a shootout and everybody died immediately. And it's, oh no, that yeah. Um, but once that got corrected, uh, it was a matter of just trying to take the tools that I had and, and match them uh, to the vision in my head. Gotcha, gotcha. So when does the possibility of uh, Feng Shui two start to start to bubble up? Um, well, there's this thing that came along called Kickstarter. So uh, previous <laughs> to that, there were occasional discussions with John Nephew about redoing it. But it was really the uh, the business factor of being able to fund it and do a bang up job of it, and uh, and uh, at that point it became clear that people wanted new, lavish, updated versions of the things that they already love. Now they want a bunch yep. of other things too, including exciting new things like like Hillfolk, for example, and and many other uh, great things by by other designers. Uh, but it seemed like a an obvious thing to finally. Uh, create the funding that would be needed to really do it upright. And, uh, you know, we reached an era where full color printing was affordable, so it could yeah. finally look good. And uh, the original, the very first one was in color, but the it was, uh, so in a way it was a return to form there. But the new version, Hal Mangold's art direction and graphic design, looks a lot more like uh uh, Hong Kong action movies than the, it's the gorgeous. previous yeah. versions had, uh, had ever done. Yeah, And initially I thought, oh, well, I'll just go in. It'll be a very quick process to just sort of fix a few <laughs> things. And then when I looked at it and saw all the things that I just talked about, I went, oh, no, this is going to be actually a, a bottom-up uh, refit. Wow. So I wound up spending a lot more time on it than I uh, had originally anticipated. But I think that more than paid off. So it'd be interesting. Let's use the Feng Shui 2 as an example. Um, coming to the point where you put the pencils down and you say, I'm done. Uh, for you, uh, is that a, the deadline's coming and I'm just going to, I'm going to do everything I can until that deadline hits? Or, or is there a, a, an end parentheses, an end bracket to your process where you go, you know what? I'm done. I'm putting the pencils down. The, uh, well, first of all, if, if today you're designing your role playing game with pencils, I would advise to use a computer instead. <laughs> you know what I that's mean, my, Robin. That's my tip for aspiring game designers. Um, with any, um, I think role-playing game is like uh, a film in that there is the potential to go on forever and you have to discipline yourself right. to just stop and then hope that the next people in the line will catch your mistakes during editing and, and so forth. And so uh, I'm, because I do this for a living, I am pretty ruthless about my time and I yeah. try to, uh, when it's a writing day where I'm writing new words, I have a quota of words that I have to hit every day to feel that I've successfully done that. Some days I go over yeah. some days, you know, some days I beat the word hill. Some days the word hill beats me, but over 
stretch of time, I always hit a quota. And also I have a quota for uh, uh, time spent editing and revising. Uh, but you've got to get it right. And you've got to hope that everybody else down the line also catches the things that you don't see. Right. Because, of course, as a writer and creator, there's a certain point where, A, you see what you meant to write. And, B, you just go text blind and go, oh, I'm done. Next person. Yep. Um, so part of discipline is to stop working on things and actually get them out the door because uh, there's, uh, you know, if you just uh, think that you can work on it until it's perfect, it's never going to be perfect. And at some point, not only are people who are expecting it going to be disappointed that it's not out and then think it's old hat, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, eventually you start de-improving it and uh, <laughs> it's time to, you know, uh, the the like a true uh, Hong Kong action movie character, if you've got a bag full of guns, it's time to occasionally you throw down the guns instead of reloading them and just pick up other guns and move on to to another project. So I try to be pretty strict with myself about going. Okay, well, you know, uh, theoretically this could be better, but I'm not going to make it any better now. And it's ready and it's good. It's time to put it out. Uh, how about your relationship with playtesting as a, a process that you enjoy, dread, a little bit of both? Um, well, it's it's absolutely essential, right? It's like asking right. someone who's building a house, how do you feel about plumbing? <laughs> it's like, I, I, I'm pretty sure plumbing is important in, in most uh, buildings, and so is playtesting. Right, but not everybody that builds houses likes doing the plumbing, right? Um, right. Well, uh, so here, rather than discuss whether I like it or not, I'll give you tips on how to do it. Um, That'd be great. One one key thing is to be insulated as the designer from the playtesters um, so that you are not the one directly communicating with them. Now, obviously not everybody is going to have a, other team members who can step up and do that. But I think it's very important because uh, then you're not receiving emotional petitioning from uh, the players who want it to be a particular way and are going to try to talk you into that. Um, another part of that is don't let the players communicate with each other because <laughs> uh, then the person who's the best at arguing will convince all of the others that they had a different experience than they had. Uh, next tip is um, you will almost invariably get one person, uh, and it's usually one person, who completely hates it. And it's <laughs> just utterly wrong for them. Uh, recently I did something where nobody hated it and it made me a little nervous. Um, and so... <laughs> Uh, expect that, be prepared for that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, suggestions that players give you or GMs give you on how to fix things are almost invariably wrong. Um, but you have to ignore that. And instead of looking at their solution, which is, I repeat wrong, uh, you have to find the other solution to that problem. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and the other, most vital thing is I want to know what actually happened at your table. Um, I don't want a, a 6,000 word write-up of what the things happen on a character level, but I want to know right. we got to this scene and the clues didn't make sense in the yep. case of a scenario. Or uh, we ran uh, the combat system and everybody died. Or the monsters were too easy to defeat. And so I'm less interested in people's opinions, especially yep. their opinions that are aesthetically derived from their theories of what they think they like at the table. <laughs> yeah. 
as opposed to what actually happened in their games. Um, And even with my home group, I will get feedback from them. But what I really am interested in is how engaged they are and what their emotional responses are during the game itself, and less about what they literally say about uh, the experience afterwards. Because gamers in particular who live in their heads will often talk themselves out of having liked things for theoretical reasons. And uh, you, as a designer, are not interested in your playtester's theories about games. You're interested in uh, whether the uh, combat was fast or slow or whether you successfully wrote your rules in a clear uh, way and whether they're consistent with each other. So the uh, almost guaranteed, though recently this didn't happen, the almost guaranteed one person that does not like the game, the playtester that hates it, is there value to be found from that person's um, thoughts or do you just have to go, you know what, I'm going to have one? No, the game was not designed for them. Okay, good, good. Someone else will design the game they like. That's good. That's good. Because they're rejecting the premise. Right, right. So there's, there's, there's no, there, yeah, that makes total sense to me. And, and yeah. you, uh, I think you would be, um, well, I would guess it, it, you could, you could hurt things if you were to try to warp things to satisfy all 10 of them, right? Right. And, and often the, the person who hates it is more trad. Although I have had people, I have on occasion had the, my entire group hated this playtester then become an avid player of, of the game. So, uh, it, and a lot of it often is if you have an original game that does something differently and the play group actually has one, uh, rule set that was designed in 1983 that they really like, uh, yeah. their, their, uh, initial resistance to that is going to be very high. And all you're getting is a measure of their, uh, frustration and uh, and anger at being confronted with something that they uh, didn't think the world needed. Sure. So the game's out there, both Feng Shui 1, Feng Shui 2, and as that's, as that's happening, tons of innovative concepts, designs, and things like that. Were there reactions that surprised you? Either, you know, wow, I didn't realize that this would be what the takeaways would be, or some, uh, some positive stuff. You're like, boy, I guess I didn't realize that I was doing that. Well, what were the reactions that surprised you? Um, I didn't expect so many people over the years to come up and say, this totally changed the way I run games and run yeah. all of my games. Um, so that's, you know, the, the best thing that you can possibly hear. Right. So I, I, I'm, uh, you need to be an egotist to make art, but I'm not enough of an egotist, or at least not at that time, to have anticipated that so many people would say that. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this, we're going to talk about another game that changed how people think about how you play games, specifically a certain genre of games. We're going to talk about the gumshoe. We'll be right back. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, 
we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Hi, this is Brian. I started listening to Third Floor Wars for information and insight about my favorite miniatures game, Malifaux. But I also get great interviews with game writers, designers, and artists, as well as some fantastic role-playing sessions with some really great players. I've been supporting them on Patreon for a year and a half so far, and it has been well worth it. Time to do a quick shout-out to our most recent patrons. A special thanks goes out to J. Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ifrit V. Diablo, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, Joe Root, Alan Cardinal, Raven Zaddo, Richard Beach, Philip Savoy, Patrick Allen, Third, Sean P. Kelly, Jesse Ravicki, James Can, Rage Quit Wire, and Dacroll. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, we're able to put out material on a weekly basis, and it's appreciated. So you you change things with Feng Shui, um, but somewhere lurking out there uh, is Gumshoe. So I'd be curious, you know, where that comes from. So where where were the, where are the beginning seeds of Gumshoe? Um, well, uh, on a business level, the seeds are in uh, not on the dying level so much are in the Dying Earth role playing game, which is the first uh, game that I designed for Pelgrane Press based on the classic fantasy uh, short stories of Jack Vance, and where I was introduced to Simon Rogers, the uh, publisher of Pelgrane Press. And so Dying Earth was his first project. And then a few years later, when he decided he wanted to produce another tabletop game, uh, he had a problem he wanted me to fix. And he wanted that fix in the form of a role-playing game. And so he said, I want a solution to the classic problem in mystery games, or as we call them, Call of Cthulhu, <laughs> where uh, you, uh, you roll to get a clue and you fail to get a clue and, and right. the story stops. Yep. And so, uh, and so, I looked at that problem, and Gumshoe is the uh, answer to that. And so, the right. the core thing about Gumshoe is that it recognizes that there are certain skills that are never interesting to fail at, um, and those uh, skills are the informational skills, the ones where the, you gather information because it's never interesting to fail to get inf- information, um, and which is actually an even bigger and more radical statement than the story shouldn't stop because you fail a role. Um, right. Because they're um, and so uh, if you have an investigative ability in Gumshoe, it's exactly the same as Call of Cthulhu, especially in Trail of Cthulhu, which is Pelgrane's licensed version of Call of Cthulhu, which adapts it to the Gumshoe system, as uh, brilliantly done by Kevin Height. Um, that when you make your library use role in Call of Cthulhu, you say, "Oh well, uh, I need to find something in this library. I, I roll library use. What do I find?" And then the, you roll. And if you succeed, the GM tells you. And if you fail, the GM spends 20 minutes faffing around trying to get you the same information in some other way and drags out so the story. True. Right. Um, and uh, Gumshoe is exactly the same, except you skip that part where you roll and you just get the information. Um, yeah. To this day, some people, it's such a simple change that it's difficult for people to, for everybody to grok, no matter how clearly we explain it. Um, and um, immediately, the response that that you're asking what surprising responses. Some there was a response from some corners that said, "Well, no one ever actually does that in their games. Everybody 
just gives them the information. That's it's not like, true. Well, that's not true. <laughs> There's no indication in the rule set, at least the rule sets that existed before Gumshoe, that you would do, ever dream of doing that. And as the designer of Gumshoe, at, when I'm at a big convention like Gen Con, and so anybody is in a game where that happens to them, they then immediately leave the game and come to the Palgrain booth to complain <laughs> to me about it. <laughs> to which, if I weren't polite, my response were, why were you playing a non-Gumshoe game? That seems to have been your error right there. Uh, you know, That's sometimes funny. people say there was a, a scan roll at the very beginning of the scenario and we failed it. So there was no scenario. And that still happens now. Yeah. Um, now, there are all sorts of knock on effects of doing that, which is if you make all information available on the grounds that all information is interesting, it becomes more like a standard mystery or even a real life police investigation where you've got a ton of facts. And instead of the question is, do I find the book in the library that tells me to go to the old mill? It's, I've got all sorts of facts and information and rumors, right. for example, like all of the documents in Lovecraft's actual story, Call of Cthulhu. And now I have to correlate the contents. I have to put them together yep. and see what's going on. And, of course, very briefly in Gumshoe, there are another set of skills because there are other things that are interesting and sometimes horrible to fail at. So if you're running away from the Shoggoth or uh, trying to fix your plane in mid-flight or uh, trying to uh, spot someone who is shadowing you, those have an interesting thing that happens either way, whether you succeed or fail. And so there's a different system for those where you use uh, resource pool points to increase uh, your results on a, on a D6. And so yep. the balance of those two things means that there is uh, still unpredictability, not just in the player choices, but in the outcomes of these general abilities. And together, that's what gives you something that feels... Uh, like a horror mystery or a space mystery or a right. sword and sorcery mystery or whatever sort of uh, version of Gemshi you've decided to play. So, Robin, one of the things that changed for me, um, and Gumshoe was part of this, um, was uh, I used to, uh, like a lot of people in the early 90s that were playing games, I, I made you roll for everything, right? If at any point you invoked something that was a skill in GURPS, I made you roll for it, and we ended up in the situations you just talked about. Um, I very quickly, uh, when I returned, realized that you just, the, 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 this statement changed everything for me. Well, you're good at this, so yeah. Yeah, you found it. Or yeah, yeah, you're able to climb that wall. That's not an issue, right? And just it, like, it sounds really dumb, Robin, but it blew, blew my mind and completely changed how I played games. Well, it's not dumb, though, because every single role-playing game that you picked up until then did that. Yeah. <laughs> All of the designers were making that mistake, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you give people a rule, surprise, they're going to use it. Yeah. Um, and so when you don't want people to, uh, you know, have... Well, you should make a jump roll to see if you jump that creek. Well, would James Bond possibly <laughs> fail at jumping right. that creek? No. In fact, it would be rather unremarkable for him to jump the creek. You would even discuss it. Yep. And so uh, if you don't want certain rules to be used all the time, don't have them there is the answer. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a very good point. Very, very good point. Um, well, guys, let's take one more break. And when we get back from this break, I want to talk about some of uh, the other works, especially some of the most recent work that Robin's put out. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. 
Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend all one word t-h-i-r-d-f-l-o-o-r-f-r-i-e-n-d you'll get a five percent discount and help support the podcast it's valid on everything except retail products and play mats so we taught we covered stuff robin i appreciate it um you have talked about feng shui and gumshoe so many times and i appreciate you doing it one more time here on this show but i want to talk about stuff that you're excited about now so what are some things that uh, you have got um either out recently or um stuff that's that we haven't covered um well the, the other major design that we should talk about a bit is Hillfolk, uh which okay. is the which is uh the, the drama system rules and it does for dramatic character interaction of what Feng Shui does for action movies and what Gumshoe does for mysteries. So the object there is to create a, a dynamic that allows you to have uh, interaction between player characters that feels like an extended dramatic storyline. So it is the game that would allow you to play The Sopranos or Succession or uh, any pretty much any premium cable drama that you can uh, think of that is that does not have a strong procedural element, right? You would have to come up with some sort of hybrid if you wanted to use it for Game of Thrones, because there are a lot of points where whether you win or lose a battle matters. Or, um, yep. But uh, most shows where it's just about people and how they change each other or don't um, is, is based on, again, looking at the uh, structure of how dramatic scenes work and uh, finding a very simple mechanism to encourage uh, players to create those uh, on the fly. And uh, those, uh, in particular, that structure comes out of one of my uh, books of uh, advice slash theory called Hamlet's Hit Points, which uh, takes three classic narratives, uh, Hamlet, as you might guess, uh, Dr. <laughs> no, and Casablanca, and breaks them down into the narrative beats that they use and how they establish an up-and-down rhythm of uh, engagement by uh, moving you toward fear sometimes and toward hope other times. And one of the major types of beat is the dramatic beat, in which there's a petitioner, someone who wants something, and a grantor, and someone who decides whether to meet their emotional need or withhold yeah. the need. And that is the, the core thing uh, behind um, uh, Hill Folk. And so it comes with a, 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 a baseline setting, which is uh, sort of a... Uh, a dehistoricized version of the Iron Age and the Levant. Um, and then there are a ton of other uh, settings written, not just by me, but a ton of other uh, luminaries of the industry from back when we did the, uh, the Kickstarter for, for that. So if uh, if anyone is looking to connect all the dots in my design, that's another yeah. one that they're going to have to uh, look at. Um, the... Can we? I want to delve a little bit because I'm not. I'm far more familiar with with Feng Shui and with with Gumshoe. So I understand the problem that it sounds like Hill Folk solves, but I I don't have a sense of and you know maybe this is a three podcast worth of a question. But how did you solve that? Uh, so how did you make? How did you fix that and and, and answer that in, in Hill Folk? So uh, basically, every dramatic scene 
uh, is a negotiation uh, of uh, an emotional negotiation in which, uh, in the simplest form, uh, the person, the character initiating the scene, uh, wants something and mm-hmm. they want it from the other person. Then there's a reason why the other person doesn't give it to them. So let's imagine for the moment that I am the chieftain of this Iron Age tribe and you are my son and I want you to go off and be heroic and go on a raid and impress uh, the rest of the tribe, uh, illustrating that, they, uh, that, that they're in good hands with the heir to the chieftainship. Right. You, on the other hand, want to write poetry and weave baskets. So I come to you and I say, uh, small wrist, it is time that you stepped up and abandoned your stupid poetry and uh, uh, set aside these ridiculous baskets, uh, which aren't even in the style of the rest of our culture, I might add, and become a brave warrior. And the horse people on the other side of the ridge, are uh, they've been uh, getting out of line. They're asking for it. It's time someone gave them the smackdown. I, of course, could easily do it. They would quail in fear to see me riding my horse over the ridge. But it's time for you to learn to make the horse fork quail in fear. So I'm sure you will do that as I and your mother desire. And you would respond. Uh, but, Dad, I love writing poetry and I love baskets. <laughs> uh, yes, you've demonstrated that. But these things are useless to our society. But it's time that you made yourself useful. You realize you've shamed your mother, don't you? <laughs> So I'm, I'm completely engaged with this. Um, is, is, it a, is it an escalation? So what happens is eventually, uh, if we were to con- continue that dialogue, there would be a point where you either decided to give in right. and give me something. You said, well, I'm not going to abandon poetry, but I will. And I'm not going to lead the raid, but I'll go with my, uh, my friend right. who's better right. at fighting. I'll, I'll yeah, okay, yeah. okay, Dad. And so that would count as your meeting the petition. Okay. And in that case, uh, you would get a drama token, which is uh, taken from the central uh, uh, resource pool in the middle of the table. Unless, that is, I already had a drama token, in which case I would have to give you my drama token because you met my desires. Interesting. If, on the other hand, you just said, nope, I don't care what you think, I don't care what mom thinks, I have baskets to make, screw you, dad, Uh, you would have rebuffed my petition and uh, either uh, you would give me your drama token if you had one, or I would take one from the central resource pile. If you yeah. Don't. And then the next player over in the order, uh, which might be you, might be another player, would then pick someone else to have an interaction with. And they might pick another player or they might pick the GM who plays all of the supporting characters. Right, right. And so as you go along and create those scenes, a, the uh, points, the drama tokens start to build up. And once right. you have two drama tokens... I can force you, the other player, to come toward me. And I slide those two. Uh, you get them. You, you, you become the new owner of those drama tokens. But then you have to say, okay, yeah, sure, I'll go on that. Right. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if you already have three and you really don't want to give in, you slide those three my way. Now I have five, but you got to, again, rebuff wow. me and go back to your basket weaving. And so as you create that over the course of an evening, you have a really uh, fun, funny, engaging dynamic yeah. where it's just all talking and uh, character interaction. So there is a little procedural system because occasionally you will want to determine whether that raid succeeds or not. But nine times out of 10 or 19 times out of 20, in fact, you will, when you call your scene, you will go, 
oh, we lost the raid. I come back wounded, crawling over the, and I'm going to go and talk to mom and ask her why she told me to go do this. And then the player playing your mom goes, I didn't tell him to send you over. What's that? (laughs) Right. Um, And so if she mollifies you, she's meeting your need and giving you a drama token. If she says, of course, I meant to shame you. I wish I'd shamed you harder, you loser. (laughs) Then you would get the the drama token. That's fantastic. It just creates an improvised story over the course of the evening. And then you continue them from session to to, uh, session. And of course, there's more to it, like how the character generation creates the sort of conflicts that you can then uh, play at the table. But that's basically uh, the dynamic. So that's you know radically different uh, from Feng Shui and from drama system. From or sorry, Feng Shui and Gumshoe. Yeah, no, that's fast. So, you know, so this was a huge mistake bringing this up because now I'm completely fascinated by this, Robin. W- like, where the hell did that idea come from? Because that you, you you once again kind of blew my mind a little. But that's really interesting. Well, again, it was from studying uh, how scenes work for Hamlet's hit points and then going, well, okay, how do I uh, actuate this into uh, an actual playable uh, game? And so it's uh, different from a lot of other story games in that it is a wrapper in which you can play all sorts of different stories rather than something that's very specifically tailored to tell one story and then you're out. And, and what, what what has been the reaction to that? I mean, this this again is is taking something that we see everywhere in games. We see people house rule this stuff. We see it handled all different. We see sometimes games don't address it at all. And then you do this. What was what was the feedback that you got when that was when that was out in the wild? Uh, well, the the reaction was uh, very gratifying. The uh, initial Kickstarter did extremely well for yeah. a, uh, at that time for a story game uh, sort of uh, thing, and uh, it won. The Diana Jones Award, yeah. uh, which is uh, an extremely coveted award because, of course, there's only one given out every year. And it's often heartbreaking uh, to see uh, games in all sorts of different categories uh, uh, or not even games. But abstract concepts sometimes go up against people against games, um, against yeah. business models. Um, and so it's, uh, it's having that uh, chosen by a mysterious panel of peers was also, of course, very gratifying. I bet. I bet. Um, so one of the other things that I picked up very early on when I came back um, is uh, your book, uh, The Laws of Good Game Mastering. Um, and that was written um, a, a little bit ago. You didn't write that yesterday, um, but it's referenced all the time um, and it's discussed all of the time. And I'd be curious. Um, and, I, you know, again, we could do a whole podcast about just what you wrote about in that book. But I'd be curious to know, um, is is there things that's in that book now that doesn't apply to your to your thought process now or does that still capture the way that you look at things well i, I haven't gone back and looked at it uh okay. and i do revisit it i'm sure there are things that i will find uh, that i will do differently and at greater length because it's a yeah. short book um but uh the other main thing is it's talking about player assumptions and player assumptions have certainly evolved a lot over that period yeah. Um, and uh, that is going to be different. But again, that was something that a rather obvious thing being laid out in detail, which is if you want to have a good game, figure out what your players collectively want and do that. Um, <laughs> you would think radical idea. Uh, that's another duh moment. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, it was not, which is why people find that book useful and still find it useful. Yep. Um, sometimes I says, and for a long time, it wasn't available in print. It was in just a PDF. 
and people wanted it back in print, I think because they wanted to give it to their GM as a sort of <laughs> gift slash hint. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think the basic uh, assumptions in that book still work, especially in the trans space. And yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a simple concept, but it's about having people accept. And there are people who still argue that, no, the uh, GM is an auteur and the players should shut up and like it. Uh, that's obviously not my point of view. Right. Um, but also just having it laid out and also thinking about things in categorical terms. So, oh, well, my player is sort of a power gamer. Um, right. My player is more of a, and uh, in the, I think it was d and I even forget my D&Ds now. I think the third edition DMG guide too has my, at that time, somewhat newer take on, on those ideas. Do you so one of the aspects of your book that I hear talked about a good bit, um, uh, and both is as a criticism and, and as a praise, is the the player bucketing, right? The the labeling of types of players. Um, uh, is that something that you you still you still think is 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 important to understanding and be able to to be able to put players in buckets and understand how to handle them based off of those categorizations? Well, people hate being categorized and right. fall into categories. <laughs> So, um, and, uh, and, and people are sort of mixes of things, but, um, yes, absolutely. I still see the impulses behind those different, uh, <laughs> uh things and, and other people see them as well. So, yeah. uh, uh, again, there are people who, you know, it's, it's reductive to categorize the fact that I only identify with my character and what they would do and never think about the story. And I'm the only person who ever does this. <laughs> and my GM must deal with me as a perfect flower rather than <laughs> looking at this description that absolutely nails everything I do and everything I'm all about and gives me advice on how to handle it. <laughs> You've never met anybody like that, have you, Robin? <laughs> no. No, these people are all just entirely hypothetical. That's funny. <laughs> um... How about your, uh, your podcast, the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff? Uh, yeah, so that's a weekly podcast that I do with the aforementioned Kenneth Height, who uh, has worked on a lot of gumshoe stuff with me, and we've collaborated on other things as well over the years. And it is our uh, weekly look at uh, gaming. And uh, uh, so it always starts with a segment called The Gaming Hut, in which we give uh, actionable gaming advice. Um, and uh, And then other topics of interest, whether it be uh, horror, uh, cinema, uh, the uh, world of the occult, uh, uh, UFOs and the paranormal, which we call elliptony, uh, history, which is uh, Ken's uh, forte, and of course, food, uh, <laughs> which was not initially one of the things we thought we would talk about. But our uh, uh, sponsor, Emeritus, John Kavalik, who did our beautiful cartoon art of us, uh, his payment for doing that was getting to pick a segment and he wanted us to do a, a food hacks. And so we thought, okay, John, we'll do one, and then no one else will care. But it's one of the most popular uh, segments on the show. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so in an episode that's coming up, for example, we look at the history of cocktails in the 19th century. So it has historical detail in it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but other times we're just talking about, you know, weird old spiral bound cookbooks we found or something. But <laughs> the, the vast majority of it is uh, uh, about uh, the sort of storytelling uh frameworks that I've been talking about uh, in this podcast or very specific gaming things or the games we work yep. on or all of the uh, historical and cultural factors that you can that fold into those games. 
So I'd be curious, Robin, um, you've been around a bit. You've been in the industry for a while. Um, how are you feeling about the, the, the current status of the, of the RPG world? Are you excited? Are you concerned? Um, is there things that you're excited about, things you're concerned about? Well, it's uh, clearly blowing up. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is. Uh, the, so there is one thing. You were mentioning about things that were in uh, the Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering that I would change. There's one thing that has now become wrong, uh, which is that the book says that role-playing is the only art form without an audience, where the uh, the <laughs> people who are creating it are the audience. The same thing. Yeah. Well, it turned out that what we really needed to blow up this uh, and make it incredibly popular this long-standing form of interactive entertainment was to turn it back into passive entertainment and put <laughs> it on the internet. Yeah. So that people are going to listen to other people play and watch other people play. And it turns out they like that. Um, yeah. And that has grown the audience enormously in part because yep. it is even better than the, how, how a role-playing game works sidebar in showing you how it works. Yep. And it's brought in a whole new audience, people from different walks of life. Uh, you know, so we've never had a, broader range of people playing and bringing their experiences to uh, gaming and they've just made it bigger. So, you know, there's even a chance this will catch on and become an even bigger thing or yeah. some of the uh, gaming properties as they're already starting to do will filter into uh, movies and TV. And uh, at some point maybe it'll be a big hit and then you'll have a crazy thing where there's a big scramble to, Turn all of the classic games and even yeah. some not so classic games. Like there's already a Tales for the Loop television show. It's amazing, isn't it? There's so much television I haven't even watched it yet, which yeah. is an, another uh, unrelated uh, but bizarre phenomenon of today. So um, if more people are in role playing and having fun role playing and think of it as a fun hobby, uh, that's uh, really the important thing. And uh, yeah. I was very gratified to see that game sales actually went up during the pandemic uh, because people yeah. uh, wanted to uh, play more because they could do so online. The, the uh, lockdown wiped out um, many people's uh, activities or way of interacting, but gaming is something that you can do, albeit with adjustments over the internet. And I think yeah. uh, now normally you would fear, oh, well, once people can leave the house again safely, that will drop away. But I think still the hunger to get together and have real conventions again and, and play in person is also great. So I don't think we'll see a, a drop in play. If anything, we might see another little uh, uptick. So um, I agree. Uh, I, the, the thing about role-playing games is that for most of the history of them through most of the history of steady, uh, if not exponential growth, people would ask at conventions at a Q and a, what do you think about the fact that the hobby is dying? And, <laughs> People can't ask that anymore. You may, no. I think you missed 25 years of that. Yeah, um, I did. But uh, now you, you can't ask that question anymore because it's obvious, even to the hoariest grognards among us, that the uh, hobby is, is growing and there's a new generation. And as, as always, there are uh, differences in taste between generations, which is good and proper. And more yeah. people coming in and bringing their perspectives and ways of looking at things. And uh, that's, that's all to the good. No, I agree. All right, so hold on to your chair for a second, Robin, because I'm gonna I'm gonna stroke your ego for a bit, but then I'm gonna transition that into a question. So, um, okay. 
your name, when I come, again, when I come back, your name kept coming up, innovations. And I would seek out, you know, what is he, what are they? Oh, wow, holy cow, look at Feng Shui. And then I would go, go well, what the hell is that? That's amazing, right? I'd be interested, though, who's blown your mind? Um, and it doesn't have to be somebody today. It could be somebody 10 years ago. But is, is there designs, games, or designers out there that, that made Robin go, oh, wow, that's, that's something? Um, well, I uh, sadly do not pretend to be uh, as au courant on what other people are doing because of the <laughs> aforementioned discipline of doing this for a living. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I don't get a chance to play a lot of other people's games, for example, because when I'm um, playtesting something, I should be playtesting my own stuff True. to make it better. Yep. Um, there, so I would look more to, you know, formative influences. And of course, the, the big two there would be Sandy Peterson and, and especially Greg Stafford. Yeah, um, because uh, they uh, really sort of lit the way in terms of uh, role playing being a, a narrative art form. So rather than uh, leave anybody today who's working, of course, Sandy is still going great guns. Yeah, he, he was uh, on the show. He's he's a, 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 just a joy, a joyful human yes. being. <laughs> um, so uh, but uh, I, yeah, I, I would say Sandy and Greg are the that's the great to sort of people I would uh, point to. So for listeners, Robin, that uh, need to get more Mr. Laws, where should they go? Uh, you can find uh, the various gumshoot games, including the very newest one, the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, the first one, the Esoterrace, and also uh, Fear Itself, Mutant City Blues, uh, Ashen Stars, also Ken's gumshoot games, uh, Knights Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu, and... Uh, uh, other gumshoe games as well and hill folk are all at pelgrane press so it's pelgranepress.com and uh feng shui is from atlas games that's atlas-games.com and uh hamlet's hit points and beating the story which uh is the outgrowth of hamlet's hit points that is just about traditional narrative about uh, fiction and uh, uh writing for the screen and comic books uh, is also from Game Playwright. That's GamePlaywright.net. Uh, uh, I've also written eight novels. You can go to Amazon to find those uh, and uh, edited a series of fiction anthologies. So uh, there's uh, lots of stuff to uh, to do if you run over to, over to Google. But the, the main body of stuff is Pelegrain Press, Atlas Games, and Game Playwright. So, guys, what I'll do is I'll go ahead and have all of that linked, including a uh, link to the uh, Amazon list of, of your work. I'll have all of that in the show notes. Um, Robin, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this was this was a huge favor to me and to the audience for you to uh, spend an hour and a half with us. And uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And for those of you that stuck around all the way to the end, I appreciate you, too. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. Yeah, that was mind blowing when I read Gumshoe, man. And, and, and for that me, is, that is my goal to blow people's minds. Yeah, and you did because I it um I was just like, 
and, and what it was, and this happened to me when I was reading Harper, uh, but again, come, coming from out of it, it's just like it all, all of it was so foreign and immediately made sense to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, all right. Because we're covering so much, I think, um, because the whole idea here, Robin, is for me to understand your process. We've learned a lot that first segment. I imagine this will be even shorter, right? Because we don't need to reiterate, you know, who you are. Um, But um, let's see where it goes. Uh, But I just don't want you to feel obligated because we spent 15 minutes on Feng Shui. We're going to spend 15 minutes on on Gumshoe. Um, Because uh, as I am learning and understanding you a little bit better, so is my audience. Um, So this is perfect, by the way. All right, I'll bring us back. Robin, that was perfect, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. As soon as you said video store, I'm like, oh, it all makes sense to me now. (laughs) That's really funny. Um, This I purposely left um, wide open, Robin. Uh, Whatever you would like to talk about here is is what I want to talk about. Um, So I will will just kind of kick it off and I'll kind of frame it as kind of pre-feng shui, uh, pre-gumshoe. um, actually, I need to ask you, how do I pronounce that game? I need um, to- well, this is a, a, uh, a question to which there is no single answer because uh, every Chinese dialect pronounces it slightly different, differently. And people in uh, North America and in uh, other English-speaking territories also pronounce it differently. So if you were to... If you listen to a Cantonese movie and hear them say those words, they say something closer to Fun Soi, but no one soy, here okay. says that, or and so you can't be understood while saying it. So right. I used to just do it phonetically and say Feng Shui, but now I say Feng Shui, which is what people say in North America. And yeah, uh, the, the idea of how you pronounce any given Chinese word is yeah, incredibly fraught, even before you get to the fact that if you're not... Uh, trained in those languages there's a bunch right. of those sounds you can't even make well good that, that makes me feel like less of an idiot then because if i've heard it pronounced and i was always like well is that what, how it sounds and i figured you know what i'm gonna have robin on the show i'm gonna ask him all right i'll bring us back hey are you still here look uh the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care. <laughs>